0: Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve the revenge you need. And how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content. So if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 9 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 3. At group, Tina and Larry are not there. Barb makes an announcement. The Portmans won't be joining us anymore. They sent me an email letting me know that they're moving and wish everyone the best. It's obvious that everyone has heard about Sharon Dempsey's demise. It made the local news, but Barb is determined to keep it from being a topic of discussion. I wonder if she even asked that Tina and Larry not return, even to say goodbye. There are no new members of the group. That's always a mixed blessing. Although new members mean additional support, it also means there is one less child in the world. Frank and Lexi tell us about the anniversary of their son's death to leukemia. Throughout it all, Lexi says through sobs, he was the one who comforted us. He wanted us to have some brothers and sisters for him that he could be a guardian angel for. To the very end, he always had a smile on his face when we walked into his room. The doctors and nurses told us that the kids are the strong ones. They couldn't do what they do if it wasn't for their spirit, even when things are bleak. Ronnie was everyone's favorite. We still hear from some of the nurses at the children's hospital. Then Yule and Wendy talk about going to a family reunion. There were photos at the there were photos at the event of the participants of previous reunions. Erica is one of the old ones, smiling gleefully delighted to have discovered a whole new batch of cousins to play with. Wendy puts her hand on Yule's. She loved playing baseball. We have this big family softball game at the reunion she always wanted to be the catcher because she got to throw the ball almost as much as the pitcher. We passed a ballpark the other day. Kids were playing. I saw a little girl that looked just like Erica, same hair in a ponytail, poking through that space in the back of her baseball cap. She sobs for a moment. We all allow a tear or two. How could one not? I wanted to go over there, to watch them, but... Yule squeezes her hand comfortingly. It's silly. One of the families had a dog. I remember Yule and Wendy telling their story some months back, how Erica had died in an accident at a block party, but they didn't go into much detail. It was a small dog, and there were kids playing with it, but it didn't matter. I saw what those beasts did to Erica. I know that those dogs were put down. I knew that this dog wasn't one of those. I grew up with dogs. We talked about getting a rescue for Erica when she was older. She loved them so much. But that man, what he did to those dogs, and what they did to Erica. Wendy falls silent. She closes her eyes and leans against Yule, unable to go on. I can tell by the looks on some of the other group members' faces that this is the first time they've heard any of this as well. Barb is the only one not looking at Yule and Wendy. She is staring directly at me. Sorry. Sorry. I'm the one who thought we should share all of that with you, Yule says. You have all been very forthcoming about the tragedies in your lives. It's always felt like we were lying to all of you by holding it back. Some of you know our story, but I think we needed to say it out loud. Wendy nods to him. Yule steals himself for the words that come next. Our daughter had her throat ripped out by a pit bull. Two other dogs ate parts of her as well before the police could rip them away. Wendy buries her face in Yule's chest. Her sobs muffled by the fabric of his shirt. We had a closed casket. Most of her face was... Yule, you don't need to do this, Barb interrupted. Yes, we do, Barb. Isn't this what we're all here for? To support each other? To be a safe place to share our feelings and bear our souls? Barb opens her mouth to say something, but thinks better of it. The man who owned the dogs raised them for fighting. The children all knew to stay away from them and there had been several occasions when they had escaped from their kennel and roamed the neighborhood we complained to the police and animal control and even tried to get the tv news to check it out everyone knew he had dog fights but he knew people with the county every time there was a chance someone might do something it just went away he wasn't invited to the block party but he showed up anyway ignoring everyone's stares he stuffed himself at the potluck buffet after adding a half-eaten bag of stale potato chips to the table It was like he was throwing all of our efforts to shut him back in our faces. What we didn't think about at the time was while he was at the party, there was no one at his house. Wendy continues the story. You know how kids are. When a bunch of them get together, there's going to be someone who dares someone else to do something stupid. It wasn't Erica who did the daring or the doing, but she was there when another little girl climbed to the top of the fence surrounding the dog kennel. The dogs were chained up out of reach, The other kids kept on daring her to go further, to sit on top of the fence, to hang over the other side. They dared her to drop down in front of the dogs, but she was too afraid. There were three of them snarling and pulling at their chains. She started swinging her legs back over, but she slipped, lost her grip, and fell to the ground inside the kennel. The dogs were straining on their chains. The girl was screaming and crying for help, and Erica... The words get stuck in her throat. She takes a deep breath, then continues. Erica climbed over the fence to help her. She got the girl up onto the fence, pushed her up to the top, and started climbing back over herself when the steel stake that was holding the dogs at bay finally pulled free. They grabbed her by the ankles and pulled her back. The other kids screamed, and some ran to get help. But the dogs were fast. They got their teeth around her throat. The medical examiner said it was quick. But I can't help think of the terror she must have been feeling. And I wonder what her last thoughts were. By the time anyone got there, it was too late. She prepares herself for the next sentence, determined to get it out despite the obvious pain it caused her. I don't think I could have done it. They had eaten her face, her tongue, chewed on her fingers. One dog had ripped open her stomach and pulled out her intestines across the dirty yard. The room is silent. Even Barb offers Wendy a compassionate look. Yule has his arm around Wendy. She buries her face in her hands and finally lets it all out. He wraps her up in his large, muscled arms, engulfing her, protecting her. He got a fine, Yule says. A $500 fine. And even that he's never paid, he says to us, explaining their frustration and pain. Heads shake in disbelief. Rebecca grabs my hand and squeezes. Wendy straightens herself up. Yule loosens his embrace and she wipes the river of tears from her face with the back of her hand. I'm sorry. I know that was hard for everyone to hear. How hard was it to say? It was hard the first time I was told how she died. It was like a dream, a nightmare. I couldn't believe that something like that could happen to a child, let alone my child. I still have dreams where I find Erica sleeping in her bed or dancing down the stairs for breakfast. I have those dreams, too, about Nick. We can't afford to move. The funeral wiped out our savings, and with the economy, we're so upside down on our mortgage. I just pray, I pray that... Barb cuts her off. We all pray that God will grant you the strength to be there for your other children. She breaks into a warm smile that is comforting, while sending a clear message that what Wendy wants to say, how she prays to God not for strength, but for vengeance, will not be tolerated. Barb is our leader, our queen, and without saying another word... She makes sure we all know it. She dedicates the rest of the time to affirmations, coaxing fond memories and happy thoughts out of the group. She's good at it. More and more, she is taking the group back. Back to the way it was before we joined. I scan the faces. Happy to see that Barb's efforts have lifted the veil that falls over all of us whenever the conversation turns to unfulfilled justice and vengeance. The meeting ends. Old Harold is the first one out. I hadn't even noticed he was there. He moves with a purpose, to avoid talking with anyone. I think about following him, trying to start a conversation, when I hear my name and turn around. Can you help me take some stuff out to my car? Brian asks. Sure. He loads me up with the box that holds the coffee cups, sugar, creamer, spoons, while he packs up the coffee pots. He casts a glance back toward Barb, who was engaged in a conversation with some of the newer members, before urging me out the door. "'You heard about Sharon Dempsey?' he asks once we're outside. "'We were there,' I tell him. "'At my boss's lake house. "'It was all anyone in the town was talking about.' "'Barb thinks the Portman's had something to do with it. "'What? That's crazy.' "'I know. "'She even suspects that Amy had something to do with Cooper's death. "'How can she think that?' "'She's bipolar. "'Keeps it in check with medication, "'but now and then she gets these fits of paranoia. "'I'm sorry.' For the most part, she's okay. She won't admit it, but I think she's starting to think that closure is something that maybe she wants, too. All this happy talk shit, sometimes it feels like a show. You know what I mean? I do. Knowing that Vitelli is dead is a whole lot better than knowing he's alive. You only had to deal with it for a few months. We've been marking the milestones in what would have been our daughter's life for over a decade. It wears on you. I expect him to start crying. I can hear it in his voice, but... Years of damming up emotions has made him impenetrable. Barb sneaks up behind me, puts a hand on my arm. I jump imperceptibly. Thanks for helping out, she says. No problem, I tell her. See you next week. See you then, she finishes, then guides Brian to the passenger door where he opens and closes it for her. He continues around the front of the car, conscious of her eyes following him. He doesn't look back as he gets into the driver's side, starts the car, then drives away. I see Rebecca say goodnight to Amy. She notices me standing alone in the parking lot, gives Amy a parting hug, and crosses to join me. What did Brian want? Just help with the boxes. Is it just me or was Barb really weird tonight? And the whole thing with the Portmans. I think she feels like the group is slipping out of her control. Well, she has been running it for a long time. Maybe she needs a break. I don't know. She kind of is the group. I don't think it would last without her. We cross to the car and get in. I start it up and drive home, playing with the radio to fill the silence. That was some story Wendy told, Rebecca casually mentions. I can't imagine knowing that your child endured all that, I reply. And all he gets is a $500 fine, she adds. I realize where this conversation is going. Someone ought to do something about it, she says, in a way that almost dares me to challenge her. Rebecca, we talked about this. We've already tempted fate twice too many times than we should have. I know, I know, I didn't mean us. I'm just saying there's got to be something. They destroyed the dogs that killed Erica, but he has more. Wendy told me. He's still doing the dog fights. Everyone knows it. Maybe that writer guy you know could stir up some interest, shame someone into doing something. Andy Horn? I don't know if this is in his wheelhouse. He's more of a mob guy. Doesn't hurt to ask. Okay, I'll give him a call. Thanks. She sits back in her seat. A sense of satisfaction settles across her face. That went better than I expected. Four. Saturday morning, Detective Court finally calls me back. He is polite but perfunctory as I tell him about my encounter with Mikey. Court thanks me for the information and promises to let me know if anything comes of it. I hang up knowing full well I won't hear a word. I notice Rebecca getting ready to go out. Going somewhere? I ask. Amy has an ultrasound appointment. She asked me to be her birthing partner. Oh, I say a bit surprised. Tell her I said hi. Okay, she says offhandedly. Bye. She leaves. I shuffle through a shower, get dressed, and step outside into the warm summer day. I'm on autopilot as I walk toward the diner where I'm meeting Eddie Horn, thinking about how I'm going to persuade him to take up the child-murdering dog fighting story. I don't see the black Cadillac limousine pull up next to me. The heavily tinted driver's side window slides down. Get in, Mikey Manzanetti grumbles. I'm surprised to see him. My heart starts to race. There's no way I'm going to get into a car with him. No, I say. He points a gun at me. I'm so terrified I almost laugh. He reminds me of one of those old character actors that's in every mob movie. Seriously, I ask. You're going to shoot me in the middle of a busy street with a red-light camera recording everything you're doing? I nod over at the device mounted on the pole that holds the traffic lights. A look of genuine surprise crosses Mikey's face. I don't think anyone has ever reacted that way before to his pointing a gun in their face. He looks up at the camera and tucks the gun back away inside his jacket. Somebody says something from the back seat. I can't make it out, but Mikey nods in response. I'm sorry, he says somewhat reluctantly. I'm caught off guard by his contrition. Would you please get in the car? My employer would like to talk to you. No, I repeat. No offense, I add, louder for the passenger's benefit, but I'm not getting in this car no matter how politely you ask. I walk around the car, cross the street, and continue on toward the diner. My body tenses, expecting to hear the sound of gunshots and feeling the sensation of hot lead piercing my back shattering bone and shredding organs. Instead, I hear a car door slam. Then an older voice calls out to me. Can I have a moment? He implores. I turn and see a thin, well-dressed man in his sixties with graying hair, slicked back, and a cane in one hand that he obviously doesn't need for walking as he lithely jogs to catch up to me. It's Tony Vitale. I apologize for my associate's rudeness. Can we talk? I'm meeting someone. Just a few minutes. Come, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. He walks past me toward the diner I'm going to anyway, so I follow. Inside, he makes a beeline for a corner table and sits with his back to the wall with a clear view of the front door and the kitchen. I stand in the doorway, scanning the diner. Eddie Horn sorts through a crazy quilt of sticky notes at a table. He looks up when I enter and waves for me to join him. I catch his eye and then look toward the corner where Tony Vitale gives his order to the waitress. Eddie instantly recognizes the old man, then drills into me with an inquisitive stare. I shrug and then proceed toward the back table where the elder Vitale waves me toward a chair across from him. The waitress sits a cup of coffee in front of me, heavy with cream and sugar, the way I like it, before I even sit down. The elder Vitali folds his hands around his cup, takes a sip, and looks up at me. He notices I haven't touched my coffee. Cream and sugar, no? Yes, I say, then quickly pick up the cup and take a sip. It's hotter than I expect. I make you nervous, don't I? He states. I nod. A product of my reputation. Some would say well-deserved. I take another sip from my cup. I wanted to talk to you because we're both fathers. I cringe as he says that, as if we're just the same. I was a father. The father of an amazing, brilliant, funny, polite little boy. He was the father of a monster. And we both lost our sons, he continues. I remember a scene from the third Godfather movie where an assassin kills a man with his own eyeglasses. Unfortunately, Tony Vitale is not wearing glasses. I take a long drink of the scalding liquid in my cup and fantasize about throwing it in the old man's face. You know, I was in the courtroom during my son's trial. I don't remember him ever being there. I watched you and your wife endure the indignity of it all. I saw that shark of a lawyer tear you a new one on the stand. I saw your hearts drop when they read the verdict. I sit still, wishing for this to be over. Okay, he finally concedes. I can see I'm not getting through with this bullshit, so I'll get right to the point. Mikey thinks you whack my son. I stare at him, stone-faced. Frankly, I don't think you've got it in you. But Mikey is a pit bull when he gets an idea rattling around in that thick skull of his. He's old school. Wants to put your head in a vice, smash your hand with a ball-peen hammer, shit like that. He squints at me. I remain frozen. I can certainly understand if you did kill Anthony. Can't say I wouldn't do the same if I was in your situation. I look down, hopefully with a tinge of grief. The thing is, I know what it takes to kill a man. It's not an easy thing. Mikey thinks you're smart enough to have pulled it off. And he even thinks you got the balls for it. But me, I don't think you'd take the chance. I think you wanted to. I think you want to whack me right now. I look at him again. I look at him again, this time with defiant determination. He smiles. Yeah, like I said, I'd want to do the same. He stands, pulls a money clip out of his pocket, peels off a 50, and tucks it under the saucer beneath his coffee cup. I'm going to tell Mikey to lay off. You don't have to worry about him stabbing you in your sleep and cutting off your toe. I betray a hint of a shiver. It amuses Tony Vitale to know I'm scared of him. I wonder how amused he would be to know he's arrogantly dismissing his son's killer. But like I said, Mikey is, what's the word, tenacious. So don't give him no reason to do nothing stupid. He grabs his cane and starts for the door, patting me on the shoulder as he passes. I turn and look toward the booth by the window where Eddie Horn is sitting, mouth agape, watching the notorious mobster stroll through the diner. I walk over to Eddie's booth and join him. What the hell? he asks incredulously. Do you know who that was? I give him a second to realize what a stupid question that is. Okay, obviously you know who he is. The conversation would have been pointless if you didn't. What did he want? He wanted to tell me he doesn't think I killed his son. Eddie takes a deep breath, absorbing the entire situation. Well, at least you got that going for you. We look at each other for a minute then laugh. (laughs) Yeah, I agree, there's that. Eddie grills me on the details of the conversation. I'm happy to oblige after all I'm here to ask him for a favor I tell Eddie the story of Erica Miller he remembers reading about it back when it happened it's not something he would normally pick up but he has contacts in the business stringers who might be interested it's just the kind of story that could gain national traction he promises to see what he can do I thank him and we order lunch passing the time with small talk he promises to get me a draft of his book but first wants to add a bit to my chapter to include the scene in the diner. 5. The cast comes off revealing a shockingly white arm underneath. Jeez, looks like you had a serial killer's arm transplanted on, Roger jokes. I laugh, then pretend that it has a mind of its own and is reaching up to choke me. Roger had talked me into letting his neighbor, the doctor who had replaced the cast when it got wet in the lake, have the honor of removing it. We came up Friday afternoon, taking off from work a little early for a guy's weekend. Sarah and Rebecca's idea, actually. Sarah had some showcases she was doing, and Rebecca and Amy were off to the casinos, feeding money into digital slot machines. I twinge in pain as my muscles and joints protest being moved after weeks of immobility. I can give you a little something to grease the skids. May be stiff for a while yet, the doctor offers. He reaches into a drawer and pulls out a couple pain reliever samples and holds them out. I take them with my good hand and stuff them in my pocket. "'Thanks. Any time. "'My PC's been running like a dream since you worked your magic on it. "'You just needed a little spring cleaning. "'Is Roger bringing you to the game tonight?' "'I glance over at Roger. "'Hadn't mentioned that yet,' Roger confesses. "'Then to me. "'We have a catch-as-you-can poker thing when enough of the wives are off doing other things "'from the game, but the pots can get a little out of control when Doc is bluffing. "'You're always welcome to call me.' "'Don't think I won't. "'Sarah had a very good month.' The two of them share a laugh over a private joke. I smile. Poker might be right up my alley. After all, I've had quite a bit of practice lying to people's faces the last couple of months. 6. I come out a little ahead after five hours of poker at Roger's friend, Jeffrey's house. He's an old-timer on the lake. The house he lives in was built by some dime-store magnate who went bust during the Depression. Jeffrey's family were the caretakers, and, being frugal people snatched the property up for a song. Jeffrey has eight children, all waiting for him to die so they can fight over who gets the lake house. But Jeffrey tells me he's going to outlive all of them because he likes his grandkids better. Roger and I walk back to his lake house. I understand why he insisted we not drive. We're both too inebriated to operate a bicycle, let alone a car. Once we get back, he offers me a nightcap. What the hell, I think. Might as well make the most of our guys' weekend. We watched some mixed martial arts and fantasized how we would take down the sweaty, bleeding gladiators on the giant screen. I don't remember much after that. Somehow, I made it to the guest room because that's where I wake up with a splitting headache. The bathroom is stocked with various remedies. I remember the painkillers the doctor gave me and down one with a cup of fizzy Alka-Seltzer, then managed to climb into the shower and let the steam sweat out the remnants of the alcohol. After a long fifteen minutes, I slip into some clothes and wander through the house, searching for Roger. He's sitting on the back porch, sipping what looks like a Bloody Mary. "'The dead rise,' he remarks. He doesn't seem to be under the same hangover cloud that I am. "'Can't remember the last time I was that drunk,' I tell him. "'It was just last night,' he offers with a smirk. "'Just the thought of laughing makes my brain hurt. "'You go for some golf later?' "'Don't know how good my game will be. Arms still stiff.' "'It'll help loosen things up. "'We can go hit a bucket at the range, maybe pick up a quick nine. Yeah, why not? Assuming I can turn off this buzzer in my head. He nods toward his Bloody Mary. Hair of the dog? I shake my head gently, not wanting to scramble the eggs in my skull any further. Hey, I meant to ask, it continues. Rebecca told Sarah something about you meeting Tony Vitale? Yep, that was certainly a weird moment. Like something out of a Scorsese film. You always think those movies are all, you know, the Hollywood version. But those guys really do that crap. He sat with his back to the corner. Had the silverware removed from the table. No shit. It was surreal. I didn't know whether to crap my pants or laugh. What did he want? I think he was sizing me up to see if I was the one who knocked off his kid. Roger laughs. (laughs) And? Turns out I don't have the balls for it. Well, in this case, that's a good thing. It is indeed. I sit back. The world spins. I'm going to make you something that will get you back on your beam in no time, Roger proclaims. He stands and heads toward the kitchen. I lean forward slowly and lay my head out on my arms. The morning sun warms the back of my neck. I hear a blender running inside. Then a couple of minutes later, Roger returns with a tall glass of a green, foamy concoction. Drink this, he commands. All at once. Don't sip. Just chug it down. I'm too weak to challenge him, so I sit up, left the glass to my mouth. It has a minty smell to it, and although it doesn't taste too bad going down, It finishes with a bitter punch that sends a spasmodic shiver down my spine. Trust me, go lie down for half an hour and you'll be right as rain. What does that even mean, right as rain? I ask. Fuck if I know. Go. Don't make me carry you back to bed because I seriously couldn't do it. You look like you've put on a few pounds. I push myself up out of the chair. By the time I get back to my bed, the pounding in my head subsides to a distant thunder. 7. I wake to the ringing of my phone. It goes to voicemail before I can pick up. It's Rebecca. I sit up amazed to find my hangover all but gone. I check the time. I've been sleeping for a little under an hour. Gotta get that remedy from Roger. I call Rebecca right back, but it goes to her voicemail. I leave a quick message about heading out to the golf course to try out my newly unencumbered arm, then change into something more appropriate for country club golf and find Roger. We run into another of his poker buddies from the previous night. Despite Roger's miracle smoothie, I still feel like I'm wearing a wet burlap bag, but these guys look like they've just gotten back from a spa. I wonder if that's just another Friday night for them. My arm loosens quickly after a few swings, but my shots all slice viciously. The pro sees my predicament, suggests an adjustment that straightens things out quite a bit. It's an old school course. We walk it while caddies carry our bags and offer their expert advice on how to approach the next shot and how the greens are playing. I even managed to win a couple holes in our friendly skins game, but lose back all my poker winnings and then some on side bets. We dine at the clubhouse, then Roger invites some of the guys back to his place. He's got baseball on the big screen. I stick to beer for the rest of the night, and in the morning, I'm right as rain. Roger convinces me to stay for lunch. He grills copious amounts of meat, which we eat with an unhealthy side of home fries and margaritas. It's well past five when I hit the road. I get home a couple hours later. There is no sign that Rebecca has returned from her casino trip. She and Amy have likely fallen prey to the outlet malls that lay in waiting on the route between here and there for gamblers who are either flush with slot machine winnings or in need of a little something to soften the blow of losing. I fire up the computer and catch up on some tech blogs I read regularly, stumble upon some stuff that might be useful for work. I find myself falling back into my old life more and more each day, and I manage to convince myself that my life didn't end when Nick's did. It changed forever, but it's still going on. Those people who tell you he would have wanted you to keep on going just might be on something. 8. Rebecca wakes me, not with a gentle nudge while whispering my name in my ear like she would if I slept through my alarm. She wakes me with lustful nibbles along my neck that traverse my chest and wander down to where she has my full attention. She teases me to the point of climax, then backs down again. She swings her body around so I can return the favor while she continues pleasing me. I know her body well enough that I can predict almost to the moment when she loses interest in gratifying me to concentrate on her own building orgasm. She flips around and straddles my face. My hand reaches around to pull her in close. Then my fingers trace light lines on her skin as they wander toward her breasts, teasing her nipples as she positions herself so I can best take her close to climax. She pulls back, leans down, and kisses me. She is voracious tonight. As she sucks my tongue into her mouth, she guides me inside her and starts sliding her body up and down along mine. There's a layer of sweat between us that amplifies the sensation, as her hard nipples seem to cut grooves into my chest. Our mouths are still joined, still hungrily devouring each other. I grab her tightly so I can roll us over. Now I'm on top, and it's my turn. She lifts her hips to change the angle of my penetration slightly, and I increase the tempo switching from shallow, slow strokes to deep, pounding thrusts. She moans plaintively, digging her nails into my skin as her back arches and she quivers at the moment I release. I realize I've been holding my breath and take a couple of deep ones as my head swims from the rush of endorphins flooding my brain. I collapse on top of her, exhausted to the point of unconsciousness. I'm reminded of the days when Rebecca and I were dating, when passionate sex like this was a nightly routine rather than a a once-in-a-while thing. But even this has another dimension to it. Ever since that night at Sierra Winds Resort, and that evening after we got my arms set at the hospital, and the weekend at the lake, I'm suddenly wide awake. I slide off Rebecca. She's still lost in bliss, her hair splayed out over the pillow, a satisfied grin gracing her lips. Then it hits me. Who did you kill? Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it, and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon, or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of Paranormal Mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Runnick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.